Okay, we are on uh, Unit 5, or and uh, the first part. The author, in his uh, teaching of this, has decided to split this into two parts, because this is a very long section. You thought we were going slow before, well, we start speeding up. In fact, today we're going to cover about 600 years of Israel's history. And in doing that, we have to do it within an hour and a half or so. So there's a lot to cover. But uh, next week, we'll, or not next week, the 25th, in three weeks, we're going to talk about another 1,000 or so years as we take a look at kings and the rulers of God's people. So we're going to split this up. I've split the session into two parts. One, we're going to talk about God's people. And then we're going to talk about God's reign and presence with his people. In between the two, I'm going to open it up for questions. So if you have questions about one segment, we'll answer those for a limited time. And then we'll go on to the second segment. <clears throat> that's also my break where I get to sleep while you ask questions. That's, that's just it. Okay. Um, let's take a look at Remember, preview. We talked about what is the kingdom of God. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. And we're going to add a third part with uh, God's blessing and God's ruler into that. We talked about the pattern of the kingdom that is creation in the garden. That which sets up the rest of the Old Testament and actually the rest of the scriptures. Last week we talked about the Abrahamic covenant and if you look at it, it's not a new covenant. It simply is an expansion of the covenant that God gave to Adam. That they were called to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, subdue it, uh, have dominion, and that he would give them everything in the world. A Abraham covenant is now that something has happened. You are to be one who blesses the nations, fills it, and you're a blessing to others. Uh, then we talked a look at what the author called the perish kingdom. I don't like that because it sounds like it died. It didn't. It was perverted. And that was Genesis 3 with the garden. The deception that took place with Eve. The actual uh, rebellion that took place with Adam. And the fall and all that it took had happened. And... The whole change that took place in God's creation. And then the promises by which he was going to restore that which was hampered or perverted. In fact, the rest of the scripture is simply God's work at that. Where God put man into the garden under the pattern of the kingdom, it was perverted. The rest of scripture is simply, how do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to paradise? Because that's what um, the garden means. A paradise means a garden. How do you get back? In fact, you look at Revelation 21 and 22. Where do they go? Back to a garden in the midst of a city. Then last time we took a look at the promised kingdom, Abraham, the covenant, and his family. And we're going to expand upon that again. These covenants are not new, different. All they are is expansions. And as we go through the different covenants, which are part of the story, 
All we're going to do is that original one in, in Genesis 1 becomes bigger and bigger and bigger until you get to the new covenant, which some people think of that word new. They hear that word new and they go, oh, it's different. No, it's just the biggest, most expansive. For instance, last summer I bought a new car that happened to be a used car. It's the same car as somebody else had it, a little old lady who only drove to church on Sunday morning. It didn't have much mileage. But to me, it's new. But it's still the same old car. It's just expanded its drivers. And it, it's work, okay? So, let's look at a video where you get an introduction to what we're going to talk about. And then we'll begin looking, first of all, at the people. Start looking at people. Um, when you take history classes, I don't know about you, but when I took history in junior high and high school, all we dealt with was dates and geography. It was boring. Who cares that the Magna Carta was set in a certain date? I mean, it has implications, and it has implications for us. And then later on, I began to realize History is not dates and places. History is people. How many of you have seen The Darkest Hour? Well, I know what you're doing tonight. <laughs> it's the story of Winston Churchill and the four days around Dunkirk. And it is powerful. Not because you know, okay, such and such is the day is of Dunkirk and all that. But you see an individual at work leading his country. So when you have an opportunity, go out and see it. It's a powerful movie. I don't get royalties from it, so I don't care. Other than you have to see this thing. Uh, also, like I like to read biographies. I'm working to get into the biography of Grant, who is a, mis a much misaligned individual, our 18th president. Tremendous. He was. Some consider him like the second Lincoln who helped lead the states out of the Civil War and into Reconstruction. The history of who he is and what makes him who he is is fascinating. And that's what makes the Civil War and Reconstruction come alive. When you know the people and who they are. Uh, and we've, we run on the stories of people. What we understand is that God chooses and uses the people that he wants. And it's through these failed, weak people that he does his work. What he does is he fills people with his spirit, and then he takes them and uses them. What we have to understand is they're people just like us. They're not superheroes. They don't put a cape on in the morning. They, don't, they, they have the same fallibles and the same weaknesses that you and I have. That's the point that James makes about Elijah. Elijah the prophet was a man just like us. But he prayed and God answered. Kind of an interesting point for your own prayer life. They're not perfect, but they are used by God in his special way. So what we're going to see is as we look at the people, is the expanding and the progressing of the covenant through each individual. 
The way I want to look at the people is through basically two lenses. One, their conversion, and second, the covenant that is given to them. So let's start with Abraham. Abraham's easier, and we don't have to go into great detail about him because we probably went into too much great detail last, last time. He comes from a family that I would call Gaudians. That is, they knew about God, they lived in a pagan culture, and we're not too sure exactly how devoted they were. They knew, you know, you look at Genesis 11 and 12 and you realize, well, at least they had the ability to hear the voice of God telling them to do something. But you're not too sure exactly how committed they were to this God. And all of a sudden, the Lord calls Abram, as he's called then, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and curse them. And dis and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all your families the of the earth shall be blessed. Now, he takes them out of this pagan, Gaudian culture. And he calls him to his to his work. I'm not too sure that's his conversion. I think that may be pre-conversion where God does work in our life to at least make us aware of who he is and in some ways we realize we have to follow him. But I think his conversion comes in Genesis 15, 6. Because that's the passage that says, that Abraham believed God and was counted unto him as righteousness. And the rest of the New Testament, or at least the New Testament, some of the Old Testament, pick that up and say, that's what it is to become a Christian. And I do use that word for the Old Testament. Yes, they pre-Christ, but Christian simply means a little Christ or a follower of Christ. And in the Old Testament, in their own way, they were following the Messiah. They were following the Christ. And here is where you see Abraham believed the Lord. He believed the promises of the Lord. He believed what he said. And it was reckoned. It was imputed to him. Righteousness. Now, it doesn't say Abraham was righteous. It says Abraham had imputed to him righteousness. It's a foreign an alien righteousness. It's the same thing with our justification. When we are justified before God, we are given an alien righteousness. And we are put into the position of being righteous. That's how God looks at us. That's how God looks at you right now because of Christ. So when you say you sin or when you do sin, say you sin, you do sin. You can go back to the Father because you are already in the position of being right, righteous, whole, integrated. Not because of yourself, but because of Christ. Okay? Well, that moves into practical righteousness. And finally, perfect righteousness. 
Practical is the whole living out, growing, maturing, becoming more like Christ, the image of Christ. Perfect is when you die and everything is the presence of sin, the power of sin is, and the penalty of sin is all erased and you are actually then totally righteous. That's what I think is conversion. And then God gives the covenant right after that. Genesis 15. And if I'm sure you remember from the last time we were together, right? You all remember that. Abraham is told to slaughter animals, cut them down the middle, put them in two rows. God comes in the form of a pot and fire, walks down between them, and makes a covenant. In essence saying, may you, if I violate and if I ever forget my covenant, you can do to me what you did to those animals. You can cut me in half. You can you know, separate me. Now that's impossible. So you know what that says? God's not going to renege. And since it's a unilateral covenant, he's the one who makes it. He's the one who will keep it. And it doesn't depend upon us. What, happen, what depends upon us is whether we are obedient to what stipulations he gives to us and there comes a blessing and a curse. But it's all upon God to keep the covenant. He builds a relationship. We have to defend the fellowship. See, that's what you're doing when you come to him asking forgiveness. It's not like you're coming, oh, we've got to rebuild this relationship. You know, I've got to walk down the aisle one more time and give my life to Jesus. No. You have that relationship. You have to repair the fellowship. How many of you have ever gotten angry at somebody? The rest of you are liars. <laughs> okay? We all get angry. And what do you have to do? You either say, relationship is not worth it. I wish that person were dead. I'm not going to deal with it. Or you go for reconciliation. Confession, repentance, forgiveness, that's all reconciliation of the fellowship. Okay? And this is what Abraham learned. This is why it's not different covenants, Old Testament, New Testament. It's the same covenant expanded. That's his conversion. That's his work. He's given the child a promise, and that is Isaac. You know, for being the second one, we don't know a whole lot about Isaac. We do know this, where his name comes from. It means he laughed. Or you could say she laughed. Abraham heard God say, you are going to have a son. You and Sarah. And he chuckles. Are you kidding me? I'm 99 years old. How am I going to have a child? Sarah's in the tent, and she hears it, and she chuckles. I'm 89 years old. Now, I would not necessarily call it a miracle, because a miracle meant it was only a direct intervention of God. Abraham and Sarah had to do what people do to have children. But it was certainly beyond what they would ever think. So, the nickname for Isaac is Joy Boy. 
That's what his, that's what his playmates call him. There's Joy Boy, laughing Larry, because that, that's what his name meant. You're Isaac. Oh, you're the laughing one. Yeah, that's, that's what it meant. Now, when, when was his conversion? That's really tough. Because it's not as clear as Abraham's in Genesis 15, where it says, And Isaac believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. I think the best and the closest way you can get to it is Genesis 22. And again, remember it. Lord tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, the son you love. Make sure that Abraham took the right boy. And they go out three days. Isaac is old enough to carry all the wood for the offering. So he's a big strapping kid. He's got to be 17, 20 years old. He's not this little six-year-old that you have in Sunday school pictures. He's a big kid. And they go, and what's this question on the way? We got the wood and we got the fire. Where's the lamb? Abraham wrestles him, puts him on top of the, the altar, is all set to sacrifice him. God says, wait, and double time, Abraham, Abraham, hold back. And what do they see? A ram in the bushes. Notice the difference. I mean, that's what you do in Bible study. You notice differences. Where's the lamb? Here's a ram. And they sacrifice a ram. I can't help but think that about that time, Isaac said, I was about to be dead meat, but God sent a ram to rescue me. And he began to see, as Abraham talked to him about why and what went on, he began to see that the promises of God were true and he could trust those promises. You know, all this time, for 17 years, all he's heard is, you're the promised one. The generations are going to come from you. You're the one God has given to us. For a brief moment, it looks like, oh man, I'm dead meat. And then he's rescued. And I think that's where the conversion took place. I'm not really willing to go to, the, uh, to, to jail for that, but that's close enough. In fact, there's a whole lot of things you should, ought not to be ready to go to jail for. You ought to say, hey, that's my supposition, but I think it's close enough. And then you have the covenant in Genesis 26. Genesis 26. This is a, God gives a promise to Abraham, or to Isaac, uh, or, and says, don't go down to Egypt, sojourn in the land, I'll be with you, I'll multiply your offspring, I will give you everything you need. Isaac doesn't go to, to Egypt, but he goes down to Abimelech, and what does he do? He learned very well from his father. He says about his wife, Rebecca, she's my sister. Why? Because he's afraid for his skin. He said, they're going to kill me, take my wife. That's the end of the promise. So I'll lie, which shows his weakness. Twice his father did it, once he does it. 
And then he comes back, he's found out, they give him a lot of goods, send him on his way. And then in verse 23, it says, From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Do you hear the covenant restated? Not in exact terms. Because God doesn't have to state it in exact exact terms. Fear not. You are mine. I will make a great nation out of you. And you can almost hear him thinking back to Abraham who probably pounded into his head. We are a great people to be a blessing to others. We are called to transform or deal or influence the nations. And you hear it said, yeah, that's just like what God said to my father. It's brought about. So you have Isaac. Um, probably the biggest accomplishment of Isaac is he had two sons. Esau, who is named because of the way in which he was born. They both were, in fact. You know Esau's nickname? He's given the name Edom, which becomes a country. But when he was born, he was all red, hairy, red. You know, you know how babies are born and they're all cute. I mean, even if they're ugly, you say they're cute. <laughs> okay? And they usually sometimes have a lot of, yeah, some people are back there, yeah, that was you, huh? <laughs> usually, sometimes they have hair. But Esau was hairy. He had hair all over him. Even coming out as an infant. And he was red. And that's his nickname. Hey, Red, want to go out and play some softball? <laughs> okay. That's, that was his name. Then you have Jacob. And Jacob, do you, do you know what Jacob means? He, grabs, he who grabs the heel. He who grabs the heel because that's exactly what he did. They're twins. I, they probably weren't uh, fraternal twins. They probably were just twins. Because when they describe them, they describe them differently. Esau's coming out. And when his heel comes out, you hear you see this little hand grasping the heel. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. No, I don't know if that was what he was doing. <laughs> but he comes out and they say, this is Jacob. The one who grabs the heel or... One who supplants. Uh, or the one who cheats. You imagine calling your son the cheater? Hey, Red, you want to come? Don't bring cheat. 
Okay? Can you imagine going through life with a name like Cheat? And it was given to him when he was born, but it was so symptomatic of who he was. Red is impetuous and has an anger problem. Just like redheads. Some redheads, let me put it that way, okay? The Irish are redheads and they have an anger problem. (laughs) Jacob has a cheating problem. He cheats his brother out of the birthright. Old Red comes in from hunting. He's famished. Cheat is making oatmeal, portage. And Red says, give it to me. And it's like Cheat goes, why? Give it to me! Okay, I'll give it to you if you sell me your birthright. So I'm number one now. And I get all, I get the majority of the estate. And Red goes, I'm famished. I can't wait half an hour. I got to eat now. And certainly he sells the birthright. Time comes for blessing. Because Isaac knows his days are numbered. He sends out Red to kill the to kill the animal, bring him his favorite stew, because he's going to give to Red the blessing of the father. Rebecca, his mother, looks at Cheat and says to him, we're going to fool your father. I'll, I'll bake something real quick. You put on sheepskin so that you feel like your brother. You go in, kind of disguise your voice a little bit, and we'll make sure Jacob gives you, or Isaac gives you the blessing that should have gone to Red. And sure enough, it happens. And Red comes back in after the, the fatherly blessing that gives him everything, that even Red is now supposed to, to uh, subjugate himself to cheat. And Red is absolutely angry. He's about ready to kill him. And cheats, and their mother says to her husband, you know... I don't think our son, Cheat, ought to have a wife from around here. Send him out to get a wife from our other family. You know, let's keep the family tree just going straight up and down like this. They were good Southerners. No, no, no. (laughs) Let's get them out to our, my uncle or my brother Laban, and let's let's get a, a, a wife from his family one of his daughters, sends him out so that Red doesn't kill him. You see the providence of God? Even though they did this in a way that was not noble at all, see what the providence of God? And what does cheat do? He gets cheated. Okay? Laban makes him work 21 years for him by, by tricking him. Where was his conversion? You can either say it was at Bethel where he, on the first night he lays down and he sees a stairway to heaven, the original stairway to heaven, not that song. And there he knows a pathway to God and there he sees God and he meets God and therefore he calls it Beth El, the house 
of God. Or you could say it was somewhere when he was with Laban. But I think it's in Bethel in uh, 2810 on the way. But then there comes the covenant. And here you have it coming on the way back. 28, chapter 28, beginning at verse 13. Well, that's, that. I'm sorry, that's, that's Bethel. Uh, no, and that's where it's given his covenant. In there, behold, the Lord stood above it on the stairway to heaven and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Jacob awoke. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I think the covenant and the conversion happen about the same place. But you hear, again, you hear the echo of the Abrahamic covenant. You hear the echo of the creation covenant at that time, and he has given it. So he goes with Laban, but he knows that the Lord has said, you're coming back, and I will give you all this property. Later on, he wrestles with the angel of the Lord. Uh, his name is changed from Jacob to Israel, from cheater to what Israel means, and it is he strives with God. Or you could say God strives with with his people. That's a perfect example of how God dealt with Jacob. He strove with him. In all of his weaknesses and all of his cheating, he stayed with him until he brings him back and then he calls him Israel. When you read the scriptures from this point on and you see places where it says the sons of Jacob or the family of Jacob. Recognize that what they're doing is they're playing on the name of Jacob, the cheater. The sons of the cheater did this. And then it'll turn around and go, the sons of Israel, the son of the one who held on to God. Just like he held on to Esau in the birth, he held on to God. And the covenant came through them. Notice this about them. They aren't great people. In fact, if you were looking for a pastor, as some churches I work with, and they put their resume in, I don't know if you'd want to even interview them. Because they're not really great people when you look at it. I know, Sunday school, we make them out to be heroes. Like they wear a cape. No, they're just like us. And if it weren't for the great sovereign grace of God, they wouldn't be anybody. But God raised them up and uses them. 
Then you have Joseph, and Joseph's even a little bit more difficult of when he was converted because there is no place that shows for sure where he came to acknowledge God, although he grew up in a very godly family and a lot of worship. We do know that he dreamt, and he was given two dreams, one where his brothers bowed down before him, second where his father and mother and brothers bowed down before him. And there may be a, a hint right there that he had come to believe in God and God was blessing him with those, those dreams. Uh, you know the story? He's mugged by his brothers. He's taken to Egypt. He's, uh, he's given a false testimony against him and he goes to prison. He interprets two dreams. Finally, he makes his way to Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. He says, what you need is somebody who will be able to help you in the seven years of, 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 uh, of great harvest for the seven years of, of famine. And he's made second in command. He was his father's favorite child. And now he is Pharaoh's favorite ruler. And in there... But you have the sense in which in all of this, although the, the covenant normally goes through all of the 12 boys, the sense of with Isaac, God is saying to him, you are special and I will help save your family through what you do here in Egypt. He, pro he fulfills the promise he gave that the family will continue. The famine touched every area around Egypt and the family of Abraham would have died out without Joseph having to go through what he went through. And in fact, at the end, one of the key points of Joseph's life is his brothers come back from the father's funeral and they're scared that their brother whom they mis had misused would all of a sudden turn on them and because he was second command in Egypt, he could have him imprisoned and do all sorts of nasty, weird things to him. And they said, you know, when your father was dying, he talked to us and he said, tell my son Joseph to, to be good to you all, which was a lie. But they're trying to save their skin. And Joseph comes back and says, am I in the place of God? You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Romans 8.28, in a different form. Okay, It's a reminder to us, everything that happens, God has a purpose in it. It seems evil, but God will bring good out of it. Car accidents, flu heartbreak, whatever you take it, God's working at it. And he's working in all of it. Okay? Well, you got him back in the Canaan, or you got him in Egypt where God had, remember, he had promised your people, Abraham, will be 400 years in Egypt, but I will bring him back. And then you have Moses. He's, uh, He's the bulrush baby. You know, he's born. He should be killed. 
that technically his mother did what was right. Pharaoh had said, put all the boys in the river Nile. He just meant throw them in. She puts them in a basket, a, a floating basket, and puts her, puts her boy in the Nile. It's like technicality. Must have been a lawyer. It's technicality. But it was true. And again, he becomes part of Pharaoh's household. And then in Moses, you have him meeting God at uh, Mount Horeb. And I think this is his conversion. Exodus 3, where he comes before God. And God says, he asks the question, who are you? What am I going to tell my people? What's your name? Now remember, to get a name was not simply to get to know the person. In some ways, you had a sense of control over the person. That's the biblical idea of naming or being a name. That's why um, Jacob wanted the name of the one with whom he wrestled. Because now I got you. I've got control because I know your name. And God says, Yahweh. Tetragrammophon. In Hebrew, no vowels. So if you're German, it could be Yahweh, uh, Jehovah, or Yahweh. And that's the way we normally think about it, Yahweh. Or in your translations, it will be capital L, small O-R-D, capitals. That's the point to the name of God. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. You can't comprehend who I am. So this is the best name I can give you. And I think when he met the burning bush and he heard that name and he was given his call, that was his conversion. At the same time, He's given a covenant. In Genesis 4, you see it. They're on their way back to Egypt after having left the sheepfold and taking his family back there. And on the way back, this is a great thing. At the lodging, 424, at the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. And sought to put him to death. Hold it, hold it. You just raised him up. 40 years in the, in the Pharaoh's passage. 40 years in the wilderness. You're sending him back and you're going to kill him? Sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. And touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him, that is the Lord, let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Notice Moses had forgotten to circumcise his own sons outside of the covenant of, that had been given to Abraham. And I think that that's about the time he began to realize what had been given to Abraham has now been given to me and I better do it. Okay. Again, 
I'm not going to the firing squad for that one. But I think that's a reasonable place in which the conversion took place. And then he's called to lead them out of slavery. He defeats the Egyptian gods. Uh, it should be a small. And he does it by plagues. Now we use the word plague. What do you think of when you hear the word plague? Bubonic plague. The flu plague. Right? Well, what the word really means is blows, strikes. What God does is he strikes every god, small g, of Egypt, one by one. And he shows who God is. And then comes the salvation by the Passover. And that with that Passover, you have the anointing of the doorpost. Put a little blood here. Put a little blood here. Put a little blood here. This begins to slide down. This begins to slide down. And this begins to drop down. And what do you end up with? A cross. You see, the cross was even in the Passover. It was by the blood of the Lamb in the sign of a cross that the first born were saved. And then you have the uh, salvation by conquest. Uh, I appreciate what the author said when he says about the Red Sea. Uh, he talks about how that is a conquest of the cross. I would put the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus as a cross. If Jesus never rose, what he did on the cross would not be available to us. He would simply have been one Jew who was crucified like the thousands that were. Resurrection makes all the difference. And it's by the resurrection that the power of what Christ did is able to be applied to us. I would go a little bit further than he would. Okay, but there, there's it. And so you have these people, you get to know these people and you get to see the, the, the history come alive and the history is more than dates and times. It's people like you and I. For instance, some of you may be like Abraham who came out of Gaudian parents and families. They went to church. They did all the right things. They obeyed the rules. And you weren't too sure whether or not they're Christians. But God grabbed hold of you and brought you out. Some of you could be like Isaac. You don't know your conversion date. Someone asks you when you were saved and they're looking for a date and you're going, abba, 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 abba. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I can't tell you the date. I can tell you about the time. I can tell you that it, you know, that it happened and I can tell you about the experience and I can tell you about the, the evidence of it in my life, but nah, not too sure. Or some of you can be like Jacob who ran away from God, and you, you look at your life and you say, what a horrible life I was leading. It was absolutely disgusting when I look back at it. 
But then I found the stairway of heaven, the stairway of heaven, and God met me and changed my life. Not all at once. I still cheated, but <laughs> but I was changed there. Okay. Let's take a couple minutes for questions. Let's get. It's when you get to retool. This is where you get to debate. This is where you get to stump the pastor. Stomp the bastard. Far be it from me <laughs> to slam a, a teacher. I don't know. Okay? Well, if you don't know him, it doesn't matter. Yes, it does. <laughs> and it's just that I know from the study of the names and the study I've done, no, it means he who supplants. He who grabs a heel. He who is a cheater. And it is... Uh, I don't know how they could call him righteous because there is none who righteous. No, not one. And they would have known that. Especially Isaac. Because he wasn't too righteous. Wow, this, this is my sister. Yeah, you take her. Thanks a lot, hon. <laughs> you know? That's... Uh, I... I I would like to see the justification for that because I've never seen it put that way. Yes, the prophecy was the younger will serve the older. But it doesn't mean that he's more righteous. Oh, the whole, see, I mean, it's, it's Jacob being a cheater that creates the end of the prophecy. You notice how God can even use evil things to bring about his purpose? It's like Joseph and his brothers. Okay, so, um, yeah, Edwin. She, they seem to fulfill God's promise by the wrong way. And for instance, Abraham and um, Hagar. They knew God wanted to have Abraham to have a child. Well, Sarah can't give me a child. I'm going over. And, you know, Sarah says it's okay if I take her her uh, helper, Hagar, and then we'll have a child. Everything's right. I mean, that's oversimplification. But the other thing is, they didn't know his name was Israel till later. He was called Jacob. And in fact, the Lord may have given them those names when he made that prophecy that this is Esau, this is Jacob, and that's his name. Israel was never in the picture until he wrestled with God and his name was changed because God was changing him in a fundamental way. Okay? Just as your name is such and such, before you became a Christian, you were the son of the devil. Now you're the son of God, a son of God. You've been adopted into the family. Your name is now Christian. Before, it was Devlion. Devlion. However you want to say that. Okay? Your name changed. When we adopted our kids, our three youngest, their names changed. Because we didn't think their names fit in with the family. And we had one girl who wanted to be called Flower. 
And we said, no, you're not going to get called Flower. You'll never make it through elementary school if your name's Flower. <laughs> you will be teased unmercifully. But we gave them new names, and those names stick, okay? I don't know if they're mocking or they're just unbelievable. This is unbelievable, man. I am 89 years old, and I'm going to have a kid next year. Uh, the, the thing with the scriptures, when you have it in black and white, you read it, you don't get the tone of voice, and they don't put it in there. Um, there could be a sense of mockery, but even if it's mockery, God uses it. You know, God takes all the mistakes and he turns them to his purpose, whether you like it or not, okay? And so, yeah, they, I, they probably, maybe, I, I, they maybe said, well, Isaac would be very appropriate because we did laugh at God, didn't we? And this is, this is Joy Boy over here, laughing Larry, right there. Yeah, and that's it's it's another way that God converts people. I mean, some it's because they see their sins, like Isaac, or yeah, Jacob. They see their sins, and all of a sudden, it's just convicted of it. Others all of a sudden see the presence of God. And they do what everyone does who gets into the presence of God. He falls down on his knees. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. And he realizes this God is not somebody to tamper with. Okay? I mean, somewhere in the Christian life, you have to have this huge vision of, who, of God, who God is. And then you begin to realize he's not my grandfather. He's not my... Uh, goodwill package. He's, he's not any other things. He is God. He's transcendent. And you fall down and worship him. There ought to be a time in your Christian life where you're afraid of him. Absolutely afraid. Because you see your sinfulness. You see his holiness. And even as a Christian, and you say, oh man, I can't live up to who he is. And he says, you're right, son. I know. That's why I'm gracious. <laughs> That's why I sent my son. See, that's what, when you have those kind of experiences, that changes your life. Okay? It makes sin more hideous than it ever was before. Now, what happens after the bur at the burning bush? Moses gives four excuses why, God, you picked the wrong person. <laughs> I'm not the one. Somebody else. I don't even know who you are. I can't talk. They're not going to listen to me. And finally, God just says, shut up. You're going down there, and you're going down there now. Rough translation, okay? But that's the sense of what he, just be quiet. I will make it for you. Okay, what else? Well, I... I mean, you can make a lot of comparisons. Um, 
John the Baptizer. Notice, I don't call him John the Baptist because I'm not letting the Baptist have him. <laughs> He's John the Baptizer, okay? And if I ever say John the Baptist, throw something at me. <laughs> John the Baptizer talked about Jesus as uh, a fire that was going to burn up. The religious chicanery that was going on. Okay. You can pull these things together where it, whether that is more our interpretation uh, or whether that's an insight. I'd have to see. I think I, I tend to be more literal. This is a bush that was burning that got the attention of Moses because it was not consumed. Whether, whether it was a thorn bush or not, we don't know. Whether it had anything to do with the cross, eh, we don't know. I just say, take it the way it is, and maybe we could add some things around it, but don't go, don't make that something you'll, you'll go to the fire squad for, because it's not worth it. God showed himself to Moses in a burning bush. Take off your sandals, it's holy ground. Now, you're going and you're going to do this. Okay, that's the simple story. Sometimes we complicate it. And, uh, you, you know, you almost sound like a great preacher right there. Oh, yes, scarlet thread that runs all the way through Scripture, you know, and go on for 50 minutes. with a It's just a scarlet thread out a window. Come on. It could have been a blue thread. Yeah, there are some parallels. Yeah, Joseph was re rejected by his brothers, almost killed. Moses was rejected by his people when he killed the Egyptian, and he had to flee. Well, yeah, the, 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 the key to that, though, is they sent his sister, his older sister, to watch him. And when Pharaoh's daughter came and picked up the the basket and said this is a Hebrew child she came down and said you want me to find somebody to nurse him and you know where he went he went back home he spent maybe three years with his mother until he was weaned so he wasn't rejected by his mother please don't look at Ten Commandments and think about that movie that's probably not a good way to look at it so but he was he was he was thrust in out of the the midst of the people because they they rejected him. I think that was part of forty years later he's going, man. Of course forty years later you think most of the people would have been dead. They don't remember me. <laughs> Who am I? Okay? I mean they didn't keep his picture hanging in every post office in Egypt as a killer. Yeah. Yep. You you have you have some of these connections between them. Okay? And that's what's that's what makes it so interesting, some of those things. Okay. We got one more section to go through. Won't be as long. I don't have any, as many pages on that as I do. Um we're gonna talk about God's rule and blessing.
because when we get to this place, we are in Exodus 19. This is the second time at Mount Horab by Moses. The first time was a burning bush. Second time he brings the people with him. And they come to the base of the mountain, and the mountain is filled with smoke and thunder and fire and lightning, and the people are absolutely frightful. Again, it's a picture of the holy God. These are sinful people. They ought to be frightened, just as we ought to be frightened when we come in. But here, God begins to develop and build a deeper covenant, Exodus 19. I know it's in here. I saw it the other day. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, third new moon would take of 90 days. On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. You imagine moving two million people. It would take 90 days to do that, what you can do in a few hours in a car. They set out from Raphidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. They camped in the wilderness. There Moses encamped before the mountains while Moses, Israel camped before the mountains while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how you, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's not a prophetic statement about tonight, Logan. Don't worry. Bore you on eagles' wings. <laughs> he's still thinking about that one <laughs> he's going no. uh, if I were Pentecostal I might think it was but now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. It's, it's deepening the covenant. Yes, you were called to be a blessing to all nations. Now I'm telling you, you're my treasured possession. You're going to be a treasured possession to all the people. And again, the phrases, kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's what you're, you're going to be. You know, Peter picks up on that in his second chapter saying this is the identity of who you are as Christians. It's one of the ties between the Old and the New Testament. Just as Israel was that, we are named that. And then, again, this is like the, the, the history part of the covenant. This is a conqueror. I'm the Lord God who brought you out. You are these people. This is why we're setting up this unilateral covenant and then comes the stipulations. We call it, well, I call it the 10 C's, 10 commandments, but it's more than the 10 commandments because it goes from chapter 20 to 24. That is the whole law that is given at that time, okay? Ten Commandments are simply the summary. Ten Commandments are simply words. And we sometimes think that when God wrote on those two tablets, he simply wrote ten words. 
but they describe everything that takes place. All of the, of what we call the law, which is somewhat a misnomer. When you think of law, what do you think of? Rules, regulations, the government. Somebody legislated this stuff. Okay? And that's how some people look at the Ten Commandments. This is God's legislation. Actually, the word is Torah, the Hebrew word. And sometimes it's used for the first five books of the Bible. This is all the Torah, the law. What it means and how the meaning behind it. These are the instructions. They're not legislative. They're simply saying, this is how you ought to live. If you live this way, you'll be blessed. Again, the covenant. If you follow the stipulations, the instructions, you will be blessed. If you don't follow them, you're cursed. You've got to remember, it's two sides of that. And you will get, and you'll see it as you go through. Some people forget that uh, the, the cursing side. And they simply say, God made his covenant. He is going to bless his people. And they almost say, no matter what. Therefore, Israel will always have the land, no matter what. But there's a curse side. If you want the biblical passage, read Deuteronomy 28. You'll have enough time between now and the Super Bowl to get through it. It's a big chapter. But it's blessing and cursing. If you do such and such and such and such, you will be blessed. If you don't do such and such and such and such, you will be cursed. And if you read that, you read the history of Israel. As long as they obeyed the instructions, God blessed the land. When they disobeyed, he threw them out of the land. And he's done it at least twice. Because they would not. And the last time was the most, the second time was the most hideous because they disobeyed the messenger that God sent, his son, their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Okay. There it is, the instructions. This is how you ought to live. So when people say, I'm going to follow the law, well, you know, and they think, oh, this is what God set down as legislation. No, this is just the way to live. Of course, they are commandments, they're not suggestions. They are meant to be that which helps you to live right with God, to maintain the fellowship and the communion and the joy with God. And as you read through Exodus to Deuteronomy, what you will see is every time they failed to follow the instructions, God dealt with them, whether it was a small group or the whole group. Um, the video talked about a, a, the, the, the law. It is a mirror. It shows we are sinners and need a Savior. It's a light to show you the way you ought to live and the standards. It's a seatbelt to restrain you from doing that which is evil or getting hurt. It's a spotlight to show you who God is. For instance, 
God says you shall not lie. Let me just pick this out of the air. He shows you you do not lie because God is faithful and true and he doesn't lie. That's why you don't do it. You don't covet because God gives what you need. Therefore, you don't look at your neighbors and say, boy, I'd like to have that Mercedes Benz. That would really be nice. That would look good in my garage. (laughs) Okay? You honor your father and mother because all of society is built upon authority. And the parents are the prime area of authority and the foundation of any society. So you honor them because God honors his fatherhood. He honors his son. And he works with us that way. You look at that and you say, well, this is God just explaining who he is. Then you get to Leviticus. And you see all these strange instructions about how you are to worship. And this is usually the kind of flyover country. You get to Leviticus 1 and it starts talking about these sacrifices. Say, when can I get to 9 or 10 where it really gets interesting? And you don't realize that 8, 1 through 8 are just as important as John 3.16. Because John 3.16 doesn't make any sense without Leviticus 1 to 8. And you need to know Leviticus 1 to 8. And then you notice one thing about Leviticus 1 to 8. All of them say, when you have unintentionally sinned, do this. I don't know about you, but there are times I intentionally sin. I lie because I don't want to get caught. You know, I covet because I really would like a Mercedes in my garage. Okay, that's an intentional sin. What do you do about that if only the sacrifices are for unintentional sins? Well, you have a day of atonement for all sins. Where one, where two animals are brought, two goats. One goat, they, and they pray over both goats, all the sins of the people. One goat they sacrifice, and they put the blood on the altar. And they take the blood into the ark and the mercy seat. And the other goat they send outside the camp and they take it so far away it never gets back. Which is a great way of showing this is exactly what God does with our sins. He takes them so far away they never come back to us. Or as Zechariah, Zephaniah puts it, he takes our sins and he throws them into the deepest part of the ocean. Zephaniah 3, 17, I think it is. And as one pastor said, and he ain't got no fishing pole to pull them back out. Okay? Right there, you're symbolizing. You read this stuff and you see, this is how God operates with my sins. Even my intentional sins. He takes care of them. And then you realize... There's no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's just everything is in Christ that fulfills what's there. So you have that provision. And then you have the place. Whoop. I love spell check. (laughs) Except when it doesn't work. Automatic check, automatic change. 
from becomes all sorts of things and uh, just uh, God gives them a place. And and again, some of this is like read over. I mean, you just get your eyes are glazed when you read through. And if you're doing the Bible in a year from NAF Press, you're going to come to that section pretty soon in Exodus. And what you're going to read is, and the tabernacle was so many feet by so many feet, or cubits by cubits, and it was this color, and it was made out of this material. I used to go, yeah, let's try to find something different. <laughs> Who cares? Until you realize God raised up two people, filled them with the Spirit in order that they would make that tabernacle. And this is where I go to my artists and my contractors and my the people I know who have real taste for colors and things and I say show me the colors this is a magnificent tent this is not something you got from L.L. Bean I mean this is beautiful it's gorgeous and it's got an outside to keep the people away from the presence of God otherwise they would die like if they went up on the mountain when Moses was meeting him it's got what he showed a outer court and then you came in through an eastern door into the altar where you gave your sacrifice and it was made, burnt. Sacrifice was made out there, burnt there. Then you had a table with bread to show how God had fed you and a light stand that gave light into that area. And then you went to an altar of incense where your prayers were offered or somebody offered prayers for you. And finally, one day a year, they opened up these huge, heavy curtains so the high priest could walk in with the blood of a goat and throw it on the mercy seat above or right below, the, between the cherubim whose wings came to the very edge of the curtain and the, filled with gold. And inside was the Ten Commandments and inside was a manna from the, the traveling and the rod of uh, Moses or of Aaron, it was in there, and you realize that's the presence of God. And they would bring your offering right into the Holy of Holies. And then you jump forward to the New Testament. And what is the ascension of Christ? Revelation 5, going up with his blood into the Holy of Holies to offer it there in the most beautiful tabernacle there ever is. You see, that's why New Testament, Old Testament, and all those silly chapters that you read over all of a sudden come alive. Because they have a depth of meaning you never saw, especially when you just flip the page through it. That's where God met his people. From the Exodus, he, left, he led them by a pillar, and he did it through the wilderness for 40 years. Led them by a pillar of fire at night to keep them warm from the desert cold, and a cloud during the day to keep the sun, the desert sun, from shining on them so it was cool, his own air conditioning. And yet, when the tabernacle was finished, the last part of Exodus, he comes and he dwells inside the Holy of Holies that only Moses could go there. And when he came out, he had to cover his face because he had been in the presence of God. You know, what a great picture 
it is of God being with his people. Almost like the garden where God in the cool of the evening would meet with Adam and Eve and talk about what happened today. You call that a platypus? I guess we'll let you, I told you, you could call it whatever you want. I'm not too sure about that name, but I gave you the permission. You do it. I don't even know why I made it. <laughs> no, that's not, that's, a, that's an addition. So this is what you call it? That's what? I meet you with the cool of the evening until they sinned, and then they hid. Now God comes into the midst of his people because the tent is always in the midst of his people. And he's there. And they can see him at the present. Now, where's God? He's in us. And he promises when we come together for study, for fellowship, for worship, he's here by his Holy Spirit. You don't see a pillar, you don't see a cloud, but he's just as much present. And even more than that, when you come to communion, he has promised that you are communing with him. It's as if you are with him and he is in this room, ready to help you, listen to you. Figuratively put his arm around you, encourage you, strengthen you. See, that's... Communion is more than just taking a wafer. It's being in the absolute presence of God. And that's the kingdom. Now you see why you study these people and why you study this stuff? The more you get to see it, the more it opens up to you. You just say, whoa. And God planned that whole tabernacle. He put together the color scheme. Man, I can't. I have to have Peg dress me because I'm not too sure of colors. But God, he just does that all the time. He's with you. Any questions? We'll take a couple minutes. Or comments. Yeah, I mean, you had the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and you knew all that stuff. But uh, one of the things I almost forgot, thank you for reminding me, there's a phrase that God can take Israel out of Egypt, but then he's got to take Egypt out of Israel. And the instructions are, this is how you get rid of Egypt within you. This is what you do that was different from there. And that's right. He, he, they spent a lot of well, it's not the reason they spent 40 years in the wilderness, but it's the reason why the Torah was given. This is how I want you to live. You haven't been living this way. This is the time now. This is how I want the nation to live. Blessings and cursings on it. This is the stipulations of the covenant. And remember, it's unilateral. I set them. I guard them. I, I police them. The other thing, which some people forget, the Torah came after the Passover. It was in that video, and I'm glad he put it that way. Because those who believe you can be saved by the Torah think that it is a way to make yourself right with God. Now, they were made right 
with God by the Passover and the Red Sea. And the Torah came after that, simply as you don't follow some religious proposal to make yourself right with God. It's our Passover lamb, it's our baptism, it's our Red Sea experience that then the instructions are called to do it. I mean, and you know, you can tell people, well, follow the Ten Commandments. And you know, if they're not Christians, you know what they're saying? Why? Why? And they don't want to. They're rebels at heart. They're sons of the devil, and that's what they—that's who they want to follow. Unless they're converted, unless they come to the cross, unless the Spirit enters them and changes their heart, they don't want to. No reason to. Yeah, it, it, it could very well be scorched, and rocks don't heal very well. Rock heads don't heal very well. People who have stones in their head don't heal very well. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So I, I wouldn't be surprised that, that there are scorch marks still there. Anything else? Any other questions, comments, debating points? Stump the pastor. Anvish. He's on holy ground. Uh, he, he is in the presence of God and he should show respect. Actually, when they went the, the, on the Day of Atonement, when the priest went into the Holy of Holies, he did the sacrifice, he prayed his prayers, and then he took off all of his clothes and put on a different robe, a white robe. And then he walked in. And when he walked out, he took off the white robe and put on his old robe. First of all, that no blood would be on the garment that entered into the Holy of Holies. It would simply be the blood in the basin that he carried. And he would come in in white clothes because that's a sign of purity. By the time he had offered sin, a sacrifice for Israel's sins and his own sins, he would be considered pure. And only those who are pure could come into the presence of God. Psalm, 1, Psalm 15. Who can come into the presence of God? Those who are pure. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are the pure of heart because they will see God. Okay? There, he would. They'd have to change clothes. Uh, Peter or Paul uses the same expression twice, Ephesians and Colossians, probably because he wrote them about the same time. Take off the old self, be renewed in the mind, put on the new side self, change clothing. It's a process because, and we never really get to it. Uh, this part. And that's why in Revelation it says they were clothed in white raiment. They finally got the priest's clothes to come into the presence of God. See, that's why you read Exodus so you understand Revelation. <laughs> there is a 
Well, it can become legalistic. But I, I think it's a great practice in a sense. I think we ought to have shoe racks. So when you come in, you get a little box, you put your shoes in, and you walk around barefoot. I have a friend that when she preaches and teaches, she takes off her shoes. Uh, so yeah, because she says, I'm, when I'm proclaiming the word of God, I'm on holy ground. Now, there's some days you wouldn't want me to take my shoes off. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, then you have foot washers that come in. But I think if if you understand and you keep it at the level of this is pointing to something else and it's not something you have to do or it makes you any more righteous with God. That's what legalism does. So it's a good way of reminding yourself when I come in this room, and what's the name of this room? Sanctuary. Not an auditorium, as some mega churches say, come on into our auditorium. And I go, ah, that's not what I wanted to do today. I wanted to go in the sanctuary. <laughs> it says, we come into the sanctuary, place set apart to worship God. Okay, so next Sunday I'll be here. I'm going to watch how many of you take your shoes off. <laughs> no. but, but no, it, it's good if it's a help. To, for you to think about you're coming into the holy presence of God. Now, some would say, yeah, we're in the holy presence of God. Shouldn't bring coffee, shouldn't bring a drink, shouldn't bring food. You know, you can, you can, uh, you can sometimes make that legalistic in that way. <laughs> well, I, I have said you could increase the offering simply by, you have to purchase a pew. These pews are $5 a Sunday. These are $10 a Sunday. <laughs> Those are 20 and the ones in the back are 50 bucks a Sunday. You'd have everybody up front. <laughs> okay? But... <laughs> I, yeah, they'd be right up here. In fact, some some cheapskates would put chairs up here. <laughs> Say this for free. Uh, but yeah, you you can you can take anything too far. But you know, again, does it fulfill the purpose of helping to remind you I'm coming into the presence of God, and I'm here, and God is here, and I'm in the presence of a holy God. And I ought to be careful. Because holy gods have a way of opening up the ground and swallowing people. Yeah. So, okay. Anything else? Any other ways we can destroy your whole idea of Exodus? Sure. The way, they, the way they would keep their history, they tell the stories. When they got home at 10 o'clock at night, and they're sitting down to eat, knowing they had to get up at 5 o'clock the next morning. They'd sit around the table, and they tell the stories. Remember Fa Father Abraham with his seven sons? The seven sons said, Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you. <laughs> Let's go praise the Lord. <laughs> now, that's where the song came. No. <laughs> 
they would, they would tell the stories over and over again so the people would be reminded. Uh, this is what's called the oral tradition. And many of the stories we have from back then has happened exactly that. Do you remember when Moses went up to Mount Horeb and we saw the presence of God on that mountain? Well, now when Moses came to write about it, he was guided by the Holy Spirit to put the exact words that God wanted. But they would know the stories. They would know Stairway to Heaven. They may even put a song to it. <laughs> Stairway to Heaven. And they would remember angels walking up and down. And then finally it got uh, in, in, um, written down, scripturated. And then they had it to read, at least some of them. Again, great invention of all time, printing press, 14, 1400s. Because now you could have a Bible in your own hand. Otherwise, you either heard it read and you had to memorize it, but you never actually saw the Bible. Now, you get to hold it in your hand. Not only a Bible, but 30,000 commentaries. And commentaries on the commentaries, all in your hand. All you need is the cloud. <laughs> okay, let's, let's close with prayer. Our Father God, what amazing thing, a person you are, and what amazing things you do. You're a God of grace that you choose those whom you want and you empower them to do what you want. We read their stories. We see how they work. You work with them and we realize, Lord, they're just like us. Work with us in the same way. You've done amazing things through them. That which sometimes we pass over because we don't see the importance. And so I pray that as we read your word, it would just jump out. How it, how it works in with the New Testament and the further history of Israel, how it works out for us. And we would see that part of the depth of the treasure we have in that book we read and the words that you've given to us. Help us in our study for next session as we look over a thousand some years of history and we see the king's and we read in their lives how they disobeyed or obeyed you and how you blessed or cursed them as well. May we learn lessons from them and be able to share it. For we ask your blessing upon us as we leave here and as we go, as we study, as we worship, as we share others, share with others the good news of our Savior in whose name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen.